Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the next season of Canadian True Crime. Thank you so much for joining me. Just a very quick note about what's coming up before I start. We usually release the major case updates and feedback episodes over the Canadian summer, but this year I had to do a bit of a reshuffle due to factors beyond my control. So major case updates is coming next on October the 1st. After that, stay tuned for a three-part series in November and another two-part series in January. That brings us to today's episode, The Murder of Samantha Walsh. It's a case that touched the hearts of Newfoundland and Labrador residents and has been requested many times. And for those who notice these things, this episode has a few place names that are French, but I'll be pronouncing them the same way that the locals in Newfoundland do. I know that you want to get right into it, so with that out of the way, it's on with the show. Canadian True Crime is a completely independent production, funded through advertising and direct donations. The podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. An additional content warning. This episode is about the murder of a 13-year-old girl. Please take care when listening. The province of Newfoundland and Labrador is made up of two separate areas. The large region of Labrador on the mainland of Canada, which shares borders with Quebec, and the smaller but more populous island of Newfoundland, which is also the world's 16th largest island. Located on the island's north-central coast is the large Bay Vert Peninsula, described as a geologically complex region with colliding tectonic plates that created amazing natural scenery from picturesque beaches backed by rocky bluffs, perfect for viewing giant icebergs that float past starting in the spring, and spotting whales and puffins in the summer. There's also hiking trails around the wooded hills where breathtaking scenery and waterfalls can be seen, and the winter opens up a whole new world of activities like skiing and snowmobiling. The Bayvert Peninsula is also home to many local towns and communities, one of which is the small fishing community of Fleur-de-Lis. The area's sheltered harbour has served Indigenous peoples for literally thousands of years. First, the Dorset people, also known as Paleo-Inuit or Pre-Inuit, who carved pots out of the natural soapstone some 4,000 years ago. Then there were the Beothuk people, hunter-gatherers who migrated over from Labrador on the mainland around the year 1 AD. It's believed that the Norse people arrived from Scandinavia to scope things out at around 1000 AD, but it would be another 500 years before explorers from England and France started arriving with the goal of colonisation. 
Today, the town of Fleur-de-Lis has over 200 residents, a community positioned around the sheltered inland harbour and its picturesque little coves. At the end of one of those little coves, right next to the water, is a beautiful green lawn decorated with yellow and purple lawn chairs leading up to a cheerful little building. It's also a distinctive building, painted bright purple with a bright yellow roof. The sign on the front of the building reads, Samantha's Saltwater Joys Museum and Café. The café's website is samsplace.org and it encourages visitors to come on in, sit down, relax and take advantage of the beauty and welcoming hospitality. Quote, bring a good book, have a coffee and something to eat and just absorb the peaceful atmosphere this place brings to your soul. Most mornings in the summer, the cafe's Facebook page posts a cheery update. As I'm writing this, the day's update read, Good morning, everyone. What a beautiful day it is here today. The sun is shining, the temp is perfect, and Millie was up extra early this morning to cook some delicious brews, chicken noodle soup, a carrot cake, and more. The posts are often accompanied by gorgeous pictures of the harbour or mouth-watering homemade treats like almond cream cheese squares or fun videos of the ladies in the kitchen having laughs as they prep the food. It's clear that locals love Samantha's Saltwater Joys Museum and Cafe, but they also know there is a sad and tragic tale about why it exists in the first place an event that brought the entire community to a halt in the year 2000. Samantha Walsh was the daughter of the cafe owners, Millie and George Walsh. This is Sam's story. In May of 1986, the Walsh family had packed up their car and were en route to Newfoundland, and they were in a bit of a hurry. George and Millie Walsh and their son Sandy had been living in Fort McMurray, Alberta, where Millie worked as a teacher and George built on his experience in mines and mills across Canada. It was always their plan to move back to their hometown, the small fishing community of Fleur-de-Lis on the Bayvert Peninsula. But by the time they hit the road, Millie was nine months pregnant with their second child, due to give birth any day. George was determined for the baby to be a Newfoundlander like the rest of the family. It's nothing against Alberta, of course. It's more that the people of Newfoundland have their own distinct culture, for a number of different reasons, including the fact that it's an island and the large numbers of Irish, Scottish, English and French people who settled there permanently had largely come for opportunities in fishing. The result is a unique variety of customs, beliefs, stories, songs and dialects. Newfoundland and Labrador was actually the last province to join the Canadian Confederation by quite a bit, and even then it almost didn't happen. In 1949, after World War II, there was a referendum as to whether it should join with Canada. The locals voted on the issue, but the result was inconclusive. So there had to be a second referendum with only two options to choose from. 52% voted to join Canada. A majority, but not by much. So that's why George Walsh wanted the baby to be born in Newfoundland. 
With a gleam in his eye, he would later tell Ryan Cleary of the telegram that if Millie had have given birth on the mainland, he likely wouldn't have told anyone until they caught the ferry across to Newfoundland. Luckily, she didn't. Eight days after they returned to Fleur de Lis, baby Samantha Bertha Walsh arrived on Monday, May 27, 1986. As Samantha grew into a toddler, George and Millie focused on building a family home, their forever home, on a bluff overlooking the harbour. It was an amazing place to raise a family. George would later tell a story about taking his daughter, who he affectionately called Sammy B, to pay for the lumber to build the home. He left the money in an envelope in the car, but the two-year-old was somehow able to grab it, open the envelope and tip the cash out the window where it blew away in the wind. One of those memories that aren't too funny at the time when you're trying to get things done, but a sweet memory of a cheeky toddler that always brings a nostalgic smile on recall. Most people called her Sam. She did okay at school, but her passions were outside, getting into nature. And that's exactly what her mother wanted for her. Millie would later tell the Western Star, quote, I just really wanted Sam to be good, just to be a good human being, to leave her mark in goodness and simplicity, and not to live false dreams, to always be connected, to value what we were born into, and not to ever turn her nose at people. Millie knew that Sam had a voice, her own perspective, and a will to stand up for what she believed in. But Sam also had a voice in the traditional sense, a wonderful singing voice, and she also played guitar. She often spoke about being a singer one day, or maybe a lawyer. When she was 10 years old, Sam lent her beautiful singing voice to a compilation her father George was putting together at the time. She recorded a cover of another of her favourite songs, Saltwater Joys by Buddy Was-His-Name and the Other Fellas a musical and comedy trio from Newfoundland and Labrador. I was born down by the water And it's here I'm gonna stay I search for all the reasons Why I should go away But I haven't got the thirst For all those matter-and-day toys So I'll stay Take my chances with those Sam recorded that song in 1996. By the year 2000, she was 13, and photos of her from the time show a pretty, wide-eyed girl with a broad grin and golden, dark blonde hair pinned at the sides. Sam looks ready to take on the world, and she really was. She loved fishing and the outdoors, and in the winter, she lived to rip it up in the Funkmobile, her orange ski-doo snowmobile. But Sam was also a teenager, so there were sleepovers with her best friend Davina. They watched movies, they played CDs on Sam's stereo. They also talked about boys, including the boy Sam was going steady with, as much as two 13-year-olds from neighbouring towns could be. Sam and Davina talked about their outfits and tried on each other's clothes. Sam was known for being trusting and easygoing, generously lending any of her clothes to any of her friends that asked. In 
It was a cold winter Sunday, February 6th, 2000, and Samantha went skiing for the day with friends at Copper Creek Mountain. Her father, George, came to pick her up, and on the drive home, they put on tapes of local Celtic bands, the Fables and the Anna Sisters, with Sam jovially singing along. That night, the family had plans to eat together at Sam's grandmother's place. It was only about a three-minute walk away, but it was, of course, freezing outside with a coating of snow. Millie had bought Sam a pair of black-and-white lamprint flannel pyjama pants just the day before, and after Sam pulled her ski pants on over the top, they set off for the short walk. The family ate supper there together, and at about 6.30pm, they had to go their separate ways. George and Millie were to drop off Sam's grandmother at a card game, but Sam wanted to head straight home quickly to finish off some Sunday night homework. Given it was only a few minutes, Sam decided not to bother with her ski pants and gloves, leaving them at her grandmother's. She put on her coat and hat for the short walk home and called out to her mother on the way out the door, just as she always did. Loves you, Mum, she said. When George and Millie arrived home after dropping off his mother at the card game, they expected to find Sam there doing her homework. But there was no sign of her. In fact, there was no sign that she'd made it home at all. George and Millie spent some time walking the streets, along the route that Samantha would have walked to get home, asking neighbours if they'd seen anything. No one had. By around 11pm, there was still no sign of Sam, so her parents notified the local police and fire brigade and then set out on snowmobiles to search for her. They were soon joined by George's brother, Gordon Walsh, who would later write a book from his perspective titled Into the Night, The Samantha Walsh Story. Gordon wrote that he assumed his niece may have been offered a ride on a friend's snowmobile and perhaps it had broken down somewhere. The problem was, the night had become even colder, with thermometers showing a temperature of minus 25 degrees, or minus 13 Fahrenheit. And they knew that Sam was not dressed to spend a lengthy period of time in that temperature, so it was imperative that they find her quickly. They checked along the edge of the harbour ice and surrounding wharves first, and then they organised a proper search of the trail network. As that happened, other relatives started contacting Sam's friends and classmates to see if anyone had heard from her. No one had. The tiny, tight-knit community of Fleur-de-Lis rallied quickly. It was after midnight now, and residents who owned their own snowmobiles were woken up to help, and those who didn't gathered at the town hall to see how else they could contribute. It was truly an all-hands-on-deck situation. By 1am, there was still no news. Sam's uncle, Gordon Walsh, would write that Sam had been missing for seven hours by that point. She didn't have the proper gear on or any supplies, and he started to agonise over the fact that she may have frozen to death by that point. But his brother George and sister-in-law Millie were standing right there, 
hopeful for their daughter's return, so for their sake he kept his worries to himself. Just after 1.30am, one of the search parties returned to the town hall with some information. There had been a sighting of Sam earlier in the evening. The search party had come across a youth who said he'd been down near a local spot known as Little Bottom with some friends. They were playing an old-school maritime game known as copying, where kids jump from one floating piece of ice to another, trying to avoid falling in the freezing waters. The youth said he spotted someone riding on a three-wheel ATV or all-terrain vehicle and then saw Samantha Walsh walk by. The ATV stopped and the youths watched Samantha hop on behind the driver before it took off again. When asked who the ATV belonged to, the youths identified Michael Lewis, a local teenager. The search party had their first lead, and it didn't take long to find 16-year-old Michael Lewis because he was already at the town hall, actively involved in the search for Samantha Walsh. They found him at a table having a snack while he waited for further instructions. It appears that Michael hadn't told anyone about his earlier interaction with 13-year-old Samantha, but when asked, he confirmed that he had given her a ride on his ATV. He said he didn't actually drop her off at her house, instead stopping to let her off at the bus shelter across the street. Michael said that he didn't see where Sam went after that. The next day, there was still no sign of her and police from the larger town of Bayvert arrived to aid the local police. They interviewed Michael Lewis, who told them what he'd told the others about dropping Sam off at the bus shelter. They also interviewed a bunch of the townspeople involved in the search. Surely someone in the community knew something that could help them determine where Sam might be. As that day turned into night, Samantha's family and loved ones continued to hold out hope that she would be found somewhere, safe and sound, with a simple explanation to explain away all they'd worried about. A police sniffer dog was brought in, but it couldn't detect a scent. A public meeting was held where police again pleaded with locals to come forward with any information they might have. The residents of Fleur-de-Lis and surrounding areas searched for Sam around the nearby harbour, the shoreline, residential streets and vacant buildings. No stone was left unturned. They looked under beds, in chill freezers, garages, closets, attics and more. They went for a second sweep and a third. They looked at the hillsides, the fishing wharves and then went to nearby towns. Locals from other towns also stepped up bringing in supplies, meals and care packages to help those conducting the search. 
As the hours passed and day turned into night yet again, the hope started to wear down. And the rumours started. Some residents would callously suggest that 13-year-old Sam must have died by suicide, or she'd staged her own abduction and her parents should expect a ransom note soon. Others insisted that someone must have abducted her against her will, or perhaps she ran away and didn't want to be found. Police thought the running away story was worth investigating, even though her parents doubted it was the case. George would tell CBC News that Sam was very close to her family and they were not having any disagreements at the time. She had no reason to run away that they could see. Millie said she went through Sam's room, her clothes, her closet, and there was not a thing missing from it. Quote, Sammy wouldn't do anything like that. If she's upset, she just says she's upset. She's so quick, but yet she's so forgiving. But while they doubted that she ran away, they almost hoped that she did. George sadly concluded that if Sam hadn't come to some harm, then she must have run away, because that's the only scenario he could think of where she would still be alive. The alternatives were just too horrifying to think about. As each day closed, all helpless locals could do was keep looking as local police turned the investigation over to the RCMP Serious Crimes Division. Soon, there was talk that a small red car had been seen near the bus shelter that Michael Lewis said he dropped Sam off at. Someone else reported seeing a small red car driving through town, and another saw a small red car passing on the highway at a high speed. The lead had people hopeful for a while, but no one knew for sure that the three sightings were the same car, and the lead went nowhere. Back to square one. In his book, Into the Night, Samantha's uncle Gordon Walsh would write that his thoughts were stuck on Michael Lewis, his ATV and the bus shelter. The teenager had been visibly very cooperative with police and helpful with the search parties looking for Sam. And there wasn't really anything overtly off about his story. It just didn't make a lot of sense. Why would he drop Sam off at the bus shelter across from her house and not her actual house. But teenagers aren't exactly known for making the most rational decisions. Locals had reported not being overly impressed when they saw Michael ripping around town on his three-wheeler ATV, just like he usually did, as though nothing had happened. Gordon would write that for him... Everything changed when an RCMP investigator came to his home to get a statement. As they chatted for a bit afterwards, the officer told him off the record that Michael Lewis had refused to take a polygraph test. Throughout modern history, polygraph or lie detector tests were widely considered to be solid indicators of whether or not someone was lying and a suspect's refusal to take said polygraph was viewed as an indicator of possible guilt. It should be noted that the public attitude is changing around polygraphs because they've long since been debunked scientifically. A polygraph test only indicates a change in stress level, and whether or not that change may have been caused by lying is completely down to subjective interpretation, 
similar to body language experts. The results are not admissible as evidence in Canadian court, but polygraphs are still used as an investigation strategy by law enforcement. This was the year 2000, and Samantha's uncle Gordon wrote that he wondered why 16-year-old Michael Lewis would refuse if he had nothing to do with Sam's disappearance. It can't have been because he was shy, because from what Gordon knew of the teenager, quote, I'm pretty sure he isn't afraid of anything or anyone. To this, the RCMP member commented that Michael Lewis was the most brazen boy he had ever come in contact with in 25 years on the job. He was clearly troubled about it. Gordon wrote that after that conversation, he suddenly had a strong feeling in his heart that Sam was dead and that Michael Lewis must have been involved in some way. He would keep his thoughts to himself, but whatever happened, he hoped his niece's death was not deliberate. Behind the scenes, RCMP investigators had of course zoomed in on Michael's story. He had maintained that he dropped Sam off at the bus shelter across the street, and he didn't see where she went after that. He was asked to describe his own movements after that. Where did he go and what did he do? It's not known exactly what he said, but the end result was that he wasn't able to account for his whereabouts for the next 90 minutes. The RCMP asked around to see if there was anyone else who could corroborate any part of his story. There were no witnesses to him dropping Sam off at the bus shelter. Investigators circled back to the youths who said they saw Sam getting on Michael's ATV and they reported that the ATV did not stop at the shelter. It continued over the hills. Circumstantially, things were looking a bit fishy where Michael Lewis was concerned. But Samantha needed to be found as soon as possible and a number of other leads also surfaced that investigators had to check out. Reports had come in that Sam had been seen at a restaurant at the Bayvert Junction bus station. The restaurant owner insisted it was her, and locals wondered, did Sam catch a bus to run away? Another lead involved the discovery of a break-and-enter at a nearby cabin, where it was discovered that someone had slept. Was that someone Sam? These leads were promising enough to bring media attention to the case, but still, no Sam. A few days later, the restaurant owner reported that she saw the same girl return on the bus, and it wasn't Sam. In desperation, Sam's parents, George and Millie, invited 16-year-old Michael Lewis over to their home to talk to him themselves. There's no evidence that his parents were anything but cooperative with this plan. After all, it was a town of only a few hundred people who all knew each other and there was no hiding from anyone. Michael Lewis actually lived close to the Walshes and his parents were as respected as any other residents of the town were. Michael was described as a childhood friend and neighbour of Samantha Walsh and was in grade 10 at the same high school. Michael had two sisters, and one of them was best friends with Samantha's cousin. Gordon Walsh would write in his book Into the Night 
that Michael's mother often went for walks with Millie and she babysat Sam when she was younger. The families were intertwined. At the table with George and Millie, Michael repeated his version of events. He dropped Sam off at the bus shelter and didn't see where she went after that. He was gently asked if maybe they got into an accident instead, but he denied it. George and Millie assured Michael there's no need to be scared. All he had to do was tell the truth, but he continued to insist that nothing like that happened. But in hindsight, his own behaviour was slightly off. Gordon would write in his book that his daughter, Samantha's cousin, was actually with Michael and his sister the first night they searched for Samantha, and she reported that Michael told them they didn't need to search certain areas. Gordon wondered, if he didn't know anything about what happened to Sam as he stated, why would he have said that? And while Michael was reportedly active in the search for Sam, many local residents had often seen him just sitting in the town hall, not doing much except taking advantage of hot coffee and free sandwiches, and quote, looking as relaxed as a schoolboy at recess. Given the gravity of the situation, his calmness at the time seemed a bit inappropriate. But now that he knew Samantha's own parents were among those eyeing him off suspiciously, that calmness was downright unnerving. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts.
As each day went on, the locals became more and more afraid. A week passed and 13-year-old Samantha Walsh was still missing. Her parents were beside themselves. Investigators had ruled out the possibility that someone from another town abducted Sam and determined that the person responsible had to be local. They were likely someone Sam knew, and they were, of course, still at large. Residents started locking their doors during the daytime, and Gordon Walsh wrote that a black cloud of despair started to gather over the town of Fleur-de-Lis. Word spreads quickly in tiny towns, and half the residents were now eyeing up Michael Lewis. Children were told to stay away from him and under no circumstances get on his ATV. The search for Samantha intensified with a massive air and land operation. The Fleur-de-Lis harbour was under an 18-inch sheet of thick ice and dive teams took to the freezing water to search for Sam. A helicopter with an infrared sensor flew overhead, searching a massive area of hills from Fleur-de-Lis to the Trans-Canada Highway, almost 90 kilometres away, with equipment detecting body heat from anyone on the ground below. The chopper paid particular attention to the area in the hills where the youth saw Michael and Sam heading on the ATV, and they got some hits with the infrared, but they turned out to be just rabbits. There was no sign of Samantha. The town was collectively helpless and daily town operations not relating to the search all but ceased. Nothing seemed more important than finding Samantha. The black cloud grew heavier. Locals started to wonder why the RCMP didn't seem to be doing more when it came to Michael Lewis. Why hadn't he been arrested and why was he still going about his business like nothing had happened? The Walsh family started to wonder if the police knew more than they were letting on. February 20th, 2000 marked two weeks since Samantha's disappearance and the community gathered at church for a vigil to pray for her return. They might not have wanted to admit it at the time, but deep down they knew that at some point the search for Samantha Walsh had turned from a missing persons case to retrieval of a body after homicide. Realistically, even the best-case scenario still meant nothing but absolute tragedy. Gordon Walsh wrote that he had another visit from the same RCMP investigator, and they spoke again about suspicions around Michael Lewis, noting that he brazenly continued to ride his three-wheeler ATV around town, on roads that he knew he wasn't allowed on, right in front of all the police cars that were in town. There he goes on that trike again, the locals would comment. And ironically, while Gordon and the investigator were having this exact conversation, one of them glanced out and happened to see Michael on his ATV riding towards Gordon's driveway where the police car was parked. The two men watched as Michael parked the ATV so that it effectively blocked the police cruiser. And when the investigator walked back to his car, they assumed that Michael would move, but he didn't. He stubbornly waited there and watched while the investigator manoeuvred the cruiser around it to leave. Brazen was one thing, but this was something else. 
Samantha's uncle Gordon commented to his wife, he is daring the police. By this point, locals had started to get angry, muttering amongst themselves that Michael Lewis was clearly the main suspect, so why haven't the police done anything? Feeling helpless, a bunch of locals floated an idea that perhaps a group of them could go and try to speak with Michael's parents. His father had been an active participant in the search effort, but like his son, Gordon Walsh noted that his behaviour was a little strange. He seemed shifty, he didn't stay in any one place for long, and when he did take a seat, he would stare out the window for a long time, lost in thought. Gordon wrote that he put himself in Michael's father's shoes and understood that it would have been difficult to know the town suspected your teenage son of having something to do with Samantha Walsh's disappearance. But he couldn't help but wonder, did Michael's father actually know something? The RCMP had actually approached Michael's parents to put pressure on him to take a polygraph. Whether or not they agreed to try isn't known, but Michael still refused. Suddenly, the phone rang. Did you hear the news? They found her. Gordon Walsh started to hear from multiple sources that Samantha's body had been found. Someone heard that her body had been found in an old mine shaft. Another heard it was a cemetery. And yet another said they heard it had been found on the side of the highway out of town. There was a lot of flurry, but it was second-hand information, and finally someone got hold of the police who said it wasn't true, and they had no idea where the rumours came from. Back to square one, again. The investigation was not going well from what anyone could see. Everything and everywhere that needed to be searched had been searched and researched, The police conducted more interviews and re-interviewed those they'd already spoken to. The family were also contacted by a psychic who offered to help, but there were no more leads. At another town hall gathering, the locals started discussing whether it might be time to consider raising money for a reward. They didn't know how successful it would be, but they had to try something. Michael Lewis was sitting there with everyone else, listening to the discussion about the reward and what it might lead to, listening even as his own name was mentioned. Gordon Walsh wrote that Michael made a big show of stretching his arms and legs before casually walking out of the building. His father walked out after him. This show made the locals extremely angry and even more helpless and the two police officers present were asked for advice on what action the locals could possibly take. The officers agreed that Michael Lewis looked suspicious, but they still had to cross their I's and dot their T's as they usually do, and in this case, because he was 16 and a young offender, they had to be even more careful. It was late at night now, but the group decided that their next plan was to head over to Michael Lewis's house and try again to get his parents to convince him to take a polygraph. In the absence of any other promising leads, the polygraph, problematic as it is, seemed to be the last hope to get any answers. But the next day, there were rumours that strongly suggested Michael had changed his mind 
and had decided to take the polygraph after all. The local townspeople knew better than to ask the RCMP for confirmation, so they sat tight and waited for news. In his book, Into the Night, Gordon Walsh wrote that there were suddenly even more police cars and trucks in town, including a huge truck with search and rescue written in large letters on the side. He asked around and learned that the truck came with some high-tech equipment to help with the search, and there were plans to investigate a country cabin that had long since been abandoned. The cabin was reportedly taken over as a party spot by local teens, including Michael Lewis. But other than asking George and Millie whether their daughter Samantha had ever been there, police remained tight-lipped about what they were looking for at the cabin. The locals were almost as invested as Samantha's own family. The town was at a standstill and no one was sleeping well. The morning turned to afternoon and the water cooler talk had reached fever pitch. Has he taken the polygraph test yet? Has anyone seen him? What if he passes? He's always seemed so cool and calm. What if he's one of those people who can beat the machine? Residents discussed their observations that Michael had become overly friendly since Samantha went missing, saying hi and waving to people who he would not have noticed before. Again, it seemed very brazen. That night, Gordon Walsh went to visit his brother and sister-in-law. They had barely slept in the time since Samantha went missing. He wrote that he first saw Millie sitting on a chair, clutching one of Sam's teddy bears with, quote, the look of misery on her face so complete I knew something had happened. When Millie saw Gordon, she burst into tears, and Gordon soon learned that the polygraph rumours were true, and Michael Lewis had gone to take the test. But he changed his mind and refused, dashing the hopes of the town as he walked out of the station. Sam's father, George, said only one thing had come from this, quote, It's made me 100% sure he is guilty. Samantha Walsh had now been missing for 17 days. There had already been two snowstorms, and everyone knew that the more time passed, the more difficult it would be to find Sam, or any evidence that could lead police to her body. The Walsh family were contacted by a volunteer tracker from Gander in Newfoundland. Leonardi Coldy was from the Atlantic Bloodhound Track and Trail team and offered to bring his dog, a bloodhound named Gypsy, to the area to do another search. Samantha's family said yes, although by now they had learned not to get their hopes up about anything. It wasn't long before Leonardi arrived in town and wasted no time in taking Gypsy straight over to the Walsh home and up to Sam's bedroom to get familiar with her scent. And then they set off. George and Millie, together with Samantha's older brother Sandy, walked alongside Leonardi and Gypsy over to Sam's grandmother's house where she ate dinner that night. And then Gypsy was off leading the way by trailing Samantha's scent as she started her walk home. 
They passed the spot where the youths playing on the ice said they saw Sam get onto Michael Lewis's ATV. Gypsy kept going. The next milestone was that bus shelter, where Michael said he dropped Samantha off. Everyone wondered what Gypsy would do when they got there, given the youths had contradicted his story by saying they saw him continue over the hills and didn't stop at the bus shelter. Neither did Gypsy. The bus shelter didn't even register with her. She walked straight past it, out and onto the hills. The group were soon joined by others on snowmobiles and Gypsy led them to an abandoned cabin that was more than four kilometres out of town. The group went into the cabin and looked around. Samantha was not there, but Millie found a piece of hair that she thought might belong to her. Outside, Gypsy was scoping the rear of the cabin and she suddenly stopped at a spot about 30 paces away. Gordon Walsh wrote in his book that Leonardi Coldy went up to where she stopped and spoke to her in Italian. No one understood what he said. The tracker then announced to everyone that Gypsy was tired and needed a rest, but they would start again first thing in the morning. Gordon Walsh wrote that he'd heard rumours that there was a special interaction between Gypsy and Samantha's mum Millie at that cabin. Millie confirmed that it was true. With tears running down her face, she said, The dog came up to where I was sitting and laid her head in my lap and looked at me. Millie told her brother-in-law that at that moment, she believed in her heart that Gypsy knew she was Sam's mother and took it as a sign that her daughter's body was nearby. Leonardi Caldi requested to speak publicly at a town hall that night. There was no news to report, so his request was somewhat surprising. After being introduced by Samantha's father, George Walsh, the tracker reassured the crowd of 400 people gathered that his dog Gypsy had found many people from those who'd been missing for a day to those missing for six months, and quote, we will find Samantha Walsh as well. In his book, Samantha's uncle Gordon Walsh wrote that it was the first encouraging thing he'd heard for a while, and the crowd were clearly taken aback by the tracker's confidence that he would get the job done. But Leonardi Caldi had another message for the townspeople. He seemed to know something that no one else knew and told the crowd that it was only a matter of time before Samantha's body was found. He urged whoever was responsible to turn themselves in immediately because things will go better for them in court. He told the townspeople that if the person responsible was a young offender, they might get seven years in prison, but if they're stupid and don't come forward, they might end up with 25. He added something that seemed to be directed at only one person. Quote, There's a young man serving 25 years now and my dog put him there. As I said, Gypsy will find Sam and when she does, she will backtrack and come to your home. She will go right to your door. (music) 
The next morning, George and Millie were given the devastating news that Michael Lewis had confessed to the police that he had murdered Samantha. He remained in custody and was soon charged with first-degree murder. The Walsh family huddled together to cry. It was not the news they'd been hoping for, and closure is impossible after a life-changing event like Samantha's disappearance, but it was at least an answer. In his book, Gordon Walsh wrote that he decided to pay Michael Lewis's parents a visit. He never mentioned them by name in his book. They're just referred to as Michael's father and Michael's mother, but he wrote that he found both of them in a daze. Michael's father told Gordon that Michael had indeed gone back to take the polygraph, and the operator's opinion was that his change in stress levels indicated he was lying about his involvement in Samantha's murder. Michael was told he failed the polygraph. It wasn't enough to arrest him or press charges, but it was enough to rattle him. His father continued, when they got home after the polygraph, he tried to talk to Michael, but he refused. So instead, his father asked him yes or no questions, and Michael would shake or nod his head in response. Having to ask his son those questions was the worst thing he'd ever done in his life, he said to Gordon Walsh, and he was extremely shocked when Michael's responses amounted to a murder confession. With his parents' help, Michael then turned himself in to the police, where he gave an official confession and told them where Samantha Walsh's body could be found. It appears that Gypsy had already found her, 30 paces from the rear of the cabin. Sam's family were nearby, which is likely the reason why the tracker suddenly called off the search, saying Gypsy was tired. Samantha's body was found lying face down in the snow. She was partially nude, with her shirt and coat hitched up and her pyjama bottoms pulled below her knees. As funeral preparations were being made, Sam's body was flown to the city of St. John's for an autopsy, which took an agonising week. The only information released by the media was that the cause of her death was strangulation, the result of deliberate and appreciable force. According to the Western Star, the RCMP Serious Crime Unit reported that the circumstances may warrant further charges, although no details were given at the time. A funeral was held for Samantha Bertha Walsh on March 3, 2000. By that point, her story had gripped Newfoundland and Labrador, and flags flew at half-staff across the province. The Walsh family had received hundreds of letters and cards from all over the country, and the interest in attending her funeral was so great that CBC News reported a local cable station was going to televise it. And on the day, so many people showed up that it caused the town's first traffic jam. The tiny town of Fleur-de-Lis only had about 300 residents at the time, but about a 1,000 people showed up for Samantha's funeral, far more than what the church could accommodate. Some drove for hours to get there, and those who couldn't fit inside the packed church watched the service on televisions at town public buildings. 
pallbearers carried Sam's coffin into the church, led by her older brother Sandy, who was carrying a cross bearing his sister's name. The Canadian Red Cross had distributed teddy bears in the days before the service, and they were clutched tightly by children, teenagers and adults alike. One teenage girl told a reporter, quote, I guess it's just to help us hold on to Samantha. Her father George clutched one of Sam's own teddy bears, and as the church was filled with the sound of Sam singing Saltwater Joys as a photo slideshow played, there was not a dry eye to be seen. Father Edward Brophy asked a rhetorical question. Will the flowers ever grow again in fleur-de-lis? He told those gathered not to weep or mourn for Samantha because she would not want a legacy of bitterness or trail of ugliness. And instead, the best way to remember her was to plant flowers in the spring. After Sam's funeral, the focus turned to what would happen to the accused teenager. The 16-year-old had been charged with first-degree murder, and because he was a young offender, his identity was protected under the Young Offenders Act. There was much speculation about whether he would be tried as an adult or not. CBC News spoke with one teen who braved the cold to attend his first court appearance. When asked how they felt when he was charged, the teen said, I didn't believe it. I argued with my parents that it wasn't him. It was reported that the accused was seen weeping with his parents sitting beside him before the court proceeding even started. After his first court appearance, Michael was reportedly sent for psychiatric and psychological assessments. And after his second, his lawyer requested a bail hearing, which angered the local residents of Fleur-de-Lis. His parents promised to vouch for him and take responsibility if he did make bail. But as Samantha's uncle, Gordon Walsh, wrote, that was far from reassuring. Quote, If they couldn't control their son before he killed Sam and before he confessed, what makes them think they could control him now? CBC News reported that the town started a petition to demand that he be denied bail, and it soon amassed over 13,000 signatures. The petition read, quote, The thought of this youth walking freely in our town and the possibility of reoffending again sends a silent shudder through the hearts of the people of this town. At the bottom of the petition were the words, Think of Sam. To everyone's relief, Michael's lawyer withdrew the bail application. Millie Walsh told CBC News that the whole court process so far had been very hard on their family, but it did keep her mind occupied. Quote, I'm half afraid that when this is over, the reality of what happens hits home. I'll have to sit down and deal with the fact of spending the rest of my life without our little girl. Michael Lewis ended up taking a plea deal. Months later, the press reported he was permitted to plead guilty to second-degree murder, and in exchange, his lawyer would withdraw an application to transfer the case to youth court. For pleading guilty to second-degree murder as an adult, 
The then 17-year-old was up for a possible sentence of life in prison with no eligibility for parole for seven years. When this plea deal was announced, his identity became public and the media was permitted to publish his name, Michael John Victor Lewis. Some media outlets printed a dark-looking photo of him sitting in court with a furrowed brow, but very little information was reported about who he was, his childhood and family life, or his reputation in the town before all of this happened. His guilty plea involved an agreed statement of facts being presented in court, but again, only scant details were reported by the media. He confirmed what everyone knew. He had not dropped Samantha off at the bus shelter. He said he turned into the hills toward that abandoned cabin in the woods northeast of Fleur-de-Lis, at some point transferring to a snowmobile. All that the media reported was this. Michael claimed he choked Samantha by accident during horseplay and then panicked and buried her body. It would later come out that the RCMP determined they had enough evidence to add sexual assault charges, but those plans were withdrawn at the time of the plea deal with no reason given as to why. There was clearly more to the story than Michael Lewis would admit at this point, but the community was likely just relieved to have him in custody. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. At the sentencing hearing held in November of 2000, George Walsh broke down while telling the court how they were affected by the murder of Samantha and the impact of her loss, 
and by the time Millie got to the end of her statement, she was visibly distressed. CBC News reported that the Walshers were supported by another Newfoundland family who experienced a similar tragedy 15 years earlier. Their eldest daughter, Marilyn Ann Newman, aged 20, had been abducted from Corner Brook by two men who raped, murdered and dumped her body. Her mother, Florence Newman, had reached out to Millie Walsh and was in court to support the family that day. The Walshers said she'd given them much comfort. Madam Justice Gail Welsh sentenced Michael to life in prison with no chance of parole for seven years, describing Samantha's murder as, quote, a dreadful crime against a vibrant 13-year-old youngster with her life ahead of her, which will continue to cause untold misery. February 6, 2001 marked one year since Samantha was murdered, and the Walsh family held a memorial service to honour their daughter's memory, the first of what would become an annual community event. Inside the church were 13 candles and a shrine of purple and yellow, Samantha's favourite colours. At some of the subsequent services, George and Millie gave out trees or small shrubs in pots, many of which were found growing throughout Fleur-de-Lis in the years that followed. By this point, the family had received around 15,000 cards, drawings and letters of sympathy from across the country, so many that they didn't quite know what to do with them all. In 2002, Samantha's uncle Gordon Walsh published the book he'd written about Sam's murder titled Into the Night. The book is more of a memoir, a tribute to Samantha, and focuses on her family side of the story from Gordon's perspective as her uncle, as he watched things unfold from the sidelines. At the end of the book is a thank you note from Millie and George, saying neither of them could find the strength to write about their terrible tragedy. Quote, Words for us seem trite in describing what follows when your child is murdered, stripped from your life. Our dear and only child, our daughter known fondly as Sam to many, Sammy to her daddy and Samantha to her mum, is dead, gone forever. Sammy didn't die, she was murdered. Gone forever, gone somewhere, but where? This is the reality of each waking moment for her mum and dad. Heartbroken, they wrote they were indebted to Gordon for having the strength perseverance and determination to document what the community was experiencing, the unveiling of an ugly truth and the aftermath. The Western Star reported that while in prison, Michael Lewis was expected to participate in employment counselling and psychological counselling to address the issues which led to the murder of Samantha Walsh. For the Walsh family, seven years went by far too quickly, and by 2007, he was eligible to apply for parole. He requested a private hearing, which was his right, but it also upset the Walsh family as they felt it was an attempt to prevent them from being heard. 
The 2007 parole hearing went ahead and new details came out about Michael Lewis's background. As Saltwire would report, quote, The parole board's report on Michael's progress, or lack thereof, is by far one of the most negatively blunt and damning reviews by the parole board in recent memory. The board's decision detailed that Michael had not participated fully in the correctional plan set out for him, and he still presented an undue risk to reoffend. He had been gambling and using drugs in prison, and he refused to do random urine tests. Quote, It appears that rather than prepare for release or commit to change, you instead focus on impressing inmates and garnering favour with them. The board pointed out that it took him three weeks to admit his crime, quote, but not before you actively deceived Samantha's family and the community at large who were engaged in what proved to be a futile search. Throughout that time, you displayed nothing close to guilt or shame. The board also referred to Michael's continued characterization of Samantha's murder as an accident. Quote, Due to the cold, you submit you were horse-playing to keep warm and there were no sexual overtones. You choked her from behind and when no pulse was found, you panicked, dragged her outside and covered her in snow. The board determined that his version of events was in stark contrast to the autopsy findings that Samantha's death was caused by deliberate and appreciable force. The board also included a few details about Michael's background. He was described as sexually aggressive for years before Samantha's murder and was known to touch girls' breasts and boys' genitals and often bullied those who were smaller, younger and more vulnerable. He had, quote, a tendency to intentionally inflict pain on others. The decision stated that Michael Lewis's behaviour made him seem inhuman. It was then pointed out that the RCMP had determined there was enough evidence to lay sexual assault charges, but they were withdrawn when Michael pleaded guilty. His parole was denied. It was, of course, a relief for the Walsh family but their experience echoes those of many other families on the victim's side. The criminal justice system is there for the criminal, not the victim, and any relief from the victim's side about parole being denied is short-lived because they know it's only a matter of time before there's another parole application. It's a constant burden to bear and a forced reminder of their personal tragedy but the Walsh family were also concerned for the community. Michael Lewis's family had reportedly left Fleur de Lis, but the Walshes held real fears for whatever community he might be released into and strongly opposed his release. Two thousand ten marked the ten year anniversary of Samantha's murder. By this point, Millie Walsh was the mayor of Fleur-de-Lis, and her husband George was the deputy. Millie told the media that not a day went by where they didn't think about Sam first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and throughout the day. Quote, It's easier, and still, it's very difficult. 
I look behind me and it's been 10 years, but when I stop to think about it, it's only like 10 minutes, 10 hours or 10 days. It seems like it was only yesterday. She said she also spent a whole lot of time thinking about what the family had lost. Quote, I think about who she is and who she could have been. If anything that Sam could have wished for, I think it would have been that people love Fleur de Lis as much as she loved it during her 13 years. It is so hard to talk about even today. When it came to the prospect of another parole board hearing, Millie said that the family were just trying to keep focused and keep the spirit of Sam in their hearts. The parole hearing came later that same year. Michael Lewis had reportedly changed his tune immediately after the last one, engaging in sex offender and anger management programs as well as work placements. He had since been transferred to a minimum security prison. At the hearing, he finally came clean about his intentions in attacking Samantha and his post-offence conduct. He admitted that when he took Sam to the cabin, he tried to rape her, and when she resisted, he strangled her to death. He then dumped her body in a snowbank before jumping back on the snowmobile and heading back into town. This was the first time he had ever admitted there was a sexual motive for the attack. The parole board granted Michael Lewis three 72-hour unescorted absence passes, and he was also permitted to start spending time at a halfway house in Nova Scotia. Millie Walsh told CBC News that the thought of him being free was fear-inducing. Quote, When he's out into society, I just feel fearful for myself, for my family, for all his friends at the time. The family also felt it was fishy that after seven years in prison with no progress, he suddenly wanted to confess properly. Quote, I think he just made the admission because it was what the parole board needed to hear. It appeared that the community of Fleur de Lis was in agreement. The former mayor, Bob Traverse, was quoted as saying that people were not happy with the decision, especially following the previous reports about Michael's lack of progress toward rehabilitation. In August of 2011, CBC News reported that Michael Lewis chose not to go ahead with an upcoming hearing for day parole. It was rescheduled for December, and he was given day parole privileges for six months to see how he went. According to Michael, the reason he'd taken so long to accept responsibility for killing Sam was because he was young, immature, and scared of losing the support of his family. Millie told the Western Star, There's no justice for Sam. That's the bottom line. It's not only for Sam. I don't think there is any justice for any murder victim. From that point on, the Walsh family knew that it was only a matter of time before he would be released on full parole. But there was another tragedy to deal with before that. The following year, 2012, Samantha's father, 66-year-old George Walsh, suddenly passed away from complications arising from a kidney aneurysm. Millie was devastated 
She would tell CBC News that George's death made her even more determined to keep fighting for justice for Samantha. Quote, Parole board members and others may question as to why I return and give my statement. It's simple. It's all I have left. In a tribute article in The Telegraph titled George Walsh's Personality Shone Right to the End, Corey Hurley wrote that George maintained his personality, sincerity and integrity throughout many challenges in his life, and he did so again even as he approached death. According to a close friend, George was always positive, right to the end. Quote, he gave everybody there the strength to go on today. Michael Lewis's day parole was extended twice, and in January of 2013, the then 28-year-old applied for full parole after serving 13 years in prison. Millie Walsh told the board of the profound impact her daughter's murder had on her life and continues to have. She said she felt it was too soon for Michael Lewis to be released, and she had her doubts about his progress. CBC News reported that she was now reflecting on the fact that she had Sam for 13 years and she had now been without her for just as long. Millie considered all that she and the family had endured with writing statements and attending hearings. Quote, I question if all my time and pleading will be in vain. I regretfully feel that the justice system is disconnected with victims such as me. She commented that Michael Lewis would soon begin a new future and will metamorphose into something new, but quote, I will always be a homicide survivor and will never experience closure. According to the Telegram, the parole board noted that Michael Lewis had a large family support system and planned to move in with a person with whom he'd started a seemingly positive relationship. The board concluded his release would not present an undue risk to society and approved his full parole. The conditions included him not being permitted to have any form of contact with Sam's family. He was also required to report all intimate sexual and non-sexual relationships with women to his parole officer. Millie was of course upset about the decision. She told CBC News it's very disturbing but to be honest, it's of no great surprise. Quote, Still, I was just hoping and seeking that he would have served a longer period. I guess if he spent forever in there, it wouldn't be long enough for me. She described Michael Lewis as a chameleon, a person who adjusts how they appear depending on the situation, adding that she just hoped and prayed that he never hurts anyone else. While it appears that Michael Lewis had the full support of his family, it's not publicly known what became of him after he was released on full parole. There's no evidence that his family ever returned to the town of Fleur-de-Lis, and now that nine years have passed since his release, no news could be considered good news. Millie was right, though. While Michael Lewis could look forward to a new future, a second chance, there was nothing that could bring Samantha Walsh back. But still, her generous family wanted to find a way to make a difference. In the years after Samantha's murder, 
George and Millie Walsh had started a not-for-profit organisation called Samantha's Saltwater Joys. They wanted to celebrate Sam's life and give back to the town that supported them in their darkest days. In the early years after Samantha's murder, they designed and built the unique little building on the waterfront in the Fleur-de-Lis Harbour using their own savings and labour, along with the helping hands of Samantha's brother Sandy and other family members and friends. George and Millie had often talked about adding a cafe or a tea room to the museum for the community to enjoy, but it wasn't to be a sombre place. They spoke about wanting it to be uplifting, a happy space to celebrate Samantha, the quintessential outport girl who loved snowmobiling, music and everything in between. Unfortunately, George passed away before that dream could be realised. But in the late 2010s, as Millie approached retirement from her teaching career, she decided that the time was right to make that dream happen. Millie opened Sam's Place in 2019, telling CBC News that finishing the building was a labour of love. Quote, I cried a lot of tears doing that floor, and I felt it was a really good healing process for me. The cheerful space features calming natural wood with lots of windows, natural light, and a wall dedicated to Samantha, with a number of bright canvases showcasing her playful and adventurous spirit. There's also a selection of the 15,000 handmade artworks, cards, letters and drawings sent from all over the country on display. Millie says it's her way of showing how much all the support meant to the family. The building's exterior was recently given fresh coats of bright purple paint, with bright yellow on the roof and deck that leads out to the amazing views from the waterfront. At Sam's place, Millie feels she's found a place for Samantha, quote, for her heart and mine. I think that's what she would want. Guests can enjoy a hot drink and a delicious homemade meal or treat in the cafe, or they can sit on the deck overlooking the water to remember Sam as they breathe in that fresh saltwater air. Millie said Sam's place provides a beacon of hope, bringing light and comfort to others who grieve. Quote, It's to let people know that you will survive and you can survive. Sam's place is seasonal, open each spring and summer, and at the end of each year, the non-profit announces all the organisations the proceeds were donated to. It closes for this season on September 18th, but you can find Sam's place on Facebook, at Samantha's Saltwater Joys Museum and Cafe or online at samsplace.org. And if you ever get the chance to visit, make sure you also check out the highly rated Fleur-de-Lis Soapstone Quarry National Historic Site, just 500 metres down the road. It's a very rare prehistoric archaeological site showcasing the Dorset people and how they use soapstone in their everyday life thousands of years ago. To finish, here's the final part of the thank you note from Millie and George Walsh, featured in Gordon Walsh's book, Into the Night. Quote, Samantha loved life and all it had to offer, including her friends and her love of song and music. May you spread Sammy's love for life by living yours responsibly and honestly. 
and appreciate all the saltwater joys in your lives. The glamour and the noise and I'll stay Take my chances with those saltwater joys Stay, take my chances with those saltwater joys Thanks for listening and special thanks to Millie Walsh. Please see the show notes for a link to Gordon Walsh's book, Into the Night. It's highly recommended. As well as links to find Sam's Place and the Soapstone Quarry National Historic Site. This episode was researched by Gemma Harris and utilised the journalism of Corey Hurley and Ryan Cleary for The Telegram and Bernice Hillier for CBC News. For the full list of resources used in this episode and anything else you want to know about the podcast, including how to access our ad-free premium feeds on Apple Podcasts, Patreon and Supercast, visit canadiantruecrime.ca. Canadian True Crime donates regularly to Canadian organisations that help those who have faced injustice. This month we have donated to the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime, who offers support, research and education to survivors, victims and their families. You can learn more at crcvc.ca or see a link in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for your kind ratings, reviews, messages and support. Thanks also to the host of True for voicing the disclaimer and We Talk of Dreams who compose the theme songs. I'll be back soon with a new Canadian true crime story. See you then.